you need to realize who you are. Like you need to realize, like for me, I'm a white male educator. That's who I am. And I need to acknowledge that and know that I have a certain worldview, a certain perspective. I was raised in a certain way. And I need to realize that students that look different than me, students have a different gender than I am. And even students that do look like me all had different experiences, different backgrounds, different upbringings. So we need to make sure that our viewpoint and our way is not the only way. Welcome to the Teacher Goals Podcast. This is your host, Erica Terry from Healthy Wealthy Educators. And I'm so excited to collaborate with Teacher Goals to bring you a weekly show that equips educators with best practices and actionable strategies to achieve success in the classroom and foster a more connected and empowered school community. Here, we learn by engaging in honest discussions with innovative teachers, administrators, and educational leaders. Are you ready to achieve your teacher goals? Of course you are, so you're definitely in the right place. Let's get started. Hey there, welcome to episode 19 of the Teacher Goals Podcast. This is your host, Erica Terry from Healthy Wealthy Educators, welcoming you to a very special episode of the Teacher Goals Podcast. I'm super excited to share that today we are interviewing my friend and the founder of Teacher Goals. I like to call him the man behind the memes, but we are bringing on Brad Weinstein, who is the author of Hacking School Discipline as well as the founder of Teacher Goals. So all of those means that make us laugh, that motivate us to keep going, even when times get tough, he is behind them all. I'm so excited to share this interview with you today. We are going to be talking about how to use a social, emotional, and restorative approach to school discipline. And when I tell you that he drops so many nuggets so many strategies, so many tools that you can implement in your class. It is fire. So you're definitely going to want to tune in. But before we get started, let me remind you that this episode, as well as all of the episodes on the Teacher Goals podcast, are recorded live with our community. So if you're not already following us at Teacher Goals on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, then I definitely recommend you get involved in our community and even join the Facebook group. Inside of the Teacher Goals Facebook group, there are so many discussions and conversations. And my favorite part about the Teacher Goals podcast is being able to engage not only with the guests, but with all of the members of our community, the wonderful educators just like you. So definitely, if you're on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or Twitter, then follow us at Teacher Goals and join us so that you can engage in the live Q&A, which always happens immediately following the interview. And I would love to get your questions and your insight on a wide array of topics that we talk about. Speaking of topics that we talk about today, we are diving deep into uh, restorative practices and how to use a social-emotional approach to school discipline. And so I am going to go Go ahead and start my interview with Brad Weinstein, the founder of Teacher Goals and author of Hacking School Discipline. Hey, Brad. Hey, Eric. How's it going? It is great. How are you? 
I'm doing well, thanks. It's 90-something degrees out here in Indiana. I'm sure it's even worse than <laughs> some of the uh, some of the listener spaces, but, you know, it, it's hot. So I've been inside quite a lot. Yes, it is definitely hot down here in the South, but we've been getting some rain this week. So it's cooled it down a little bit for us. I know I'm not complaining. But yes, we have so much to talk about tonight. But before we get to talking, I just have to say happy birthday. Uh, welcome to the 40 Club. <laughs> so much. Yeah, it's one of those things where you have to remember how old you are all the time. You know, yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember if I was 37 or 39 half the time. But now when you're 40, you're not going to forget how old you are. So, you know, I, yeah, thanks for everyone saying happy birthday. It, it's one of those things where, man, it goes fast. So you better enjoy it. Yes. And one day you'll be like me where you're well into your 40s. But, you know, my daughter thinks I'm 37. So I just go with that. You know, like, oh, yeah, if that's what you think. That's how old I am. And so we stick with that. (laughs) And so happy birthday. But we're going to go ahead and just jump right into it tonight. Just in case you're on here and you don't know, this is the actual founder of Teacher Goals. So all of those memes that make you laugh, keep you inspired, keep you motivated. This is the man right here that is behind all of the greatness that comes from the Teacher Goals community. And so with that being said, kind of start us off by telling us about who you are, what you do, and just give us a little insight on what made you start Teacher Goals. Sure. I have, you know, I started off my education career at the elementary level, and I taught middle school for about a decade or so. I was a principal. I was a director of curriculum. I wrote the book, Hack and School Discipline, which we'll talk about in, in a little while. I wasn't expecting it to do what it did, I was expecting to remain an educator for the foreseeable future. And now what I do is I go around and I help schools implement the restorative practices that we talked about book. I continue to work with teacher goals and to make sure that the teachers feel seen, heard, valued, have a voice. So I continually work with teachers as well. You know, like discipline is something that I do as a job and something I do when I help schools with. But it's also, you know, you got to laugh instead of cry sometimes. So <laughs> I've never lost my sense of humor, even though I became an author. And, and wrote a book about discipline, you still have to have a sense of humor. You have to have some moments where, you know, something you just got to laugh about because if not, the job would beat you down. And sometimes, you know, you just got to laugh because you, you would not know or believe unless you were an educator sometimes what the job was actually like and what you go through. That is so true. And when you talk about laugh instead of crying, that's definitely what your memes do for me. But you know by now that I'm always in people's business. So tell us what happened in that middle school that made you where you recognize like, okay, I'm not going to cry. I got to laugh and I'm going to write a book that's going to help other people implement restorative and social emotional strategies for school discipline. Like what was going on? Sure. So when I when I moved from elementary, you know, elementary social emotional learning is more prevalent. You know, there's a lot of curriculums of social emotional learning. There's more of an emphasis in the schooling. You know, when you're an elementary teacher, there's a lot more emphasis on social emotional learning. But when you go into the secondary world, what I noticed was that there was a lot less emphasis on the social emotional component of teaching. And what I also noticed was there was a disconnect because these kids, when they get to become teenagers, they have just as many social emotional needs, if not more, than they did when they were younger. So I noticed there was a lot of conflict, a lot of clicks, a lot of, you know, people not getting along, a lot of talking when I was teaching, a lot of fights and 
all, all kinds of, kind of things. So when you think about the middle school level, I realized that there wasn't really something out there that existed when it came to classroom management. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff you read about elementary in that subject and in that realm, but there's nothing that really hits on what to do with kids once they become a little bit older. And in my work, I've realized that, you know, the restorative practices that we do, the social emotional that we do, the trauma-informed learning practices that we work with schools to develop and implement, you know, that's for everyone. I don't care if you're zero years old. I don't care if you're 99 years old. You know, you have to be able to be a collaborator. You have to be able to be a good teammate. You have to be able to know how to accept rejection. You have to know how to resolve conflict. You have to know how to work with people that are different than you, look different than you, have different beliefs than you. And what I noticed again was at the middle school level, you know, we did a great job of teaching and had great content and great curriculum maps, but we didn't always have a way to build those relationships and those connections with kids. And what I noticed is that when the, when, you know, restorative practice have been around for a long time, but it, it's not really written for a classroom setting. It's more of a bigger conflict. Like there's been a fight. There's been, you know, some sort of outside of school altercation or argument. There's harm that's been caused. You know, it's not something that is typically done for situations that are smaller, situations that don't rise to the level of the office. So it wasn't really something that was accessible, I guess you could say, at the classroom level. So the reason why our book did so well, in my opinion, is because we actually wrote it in layman's terms. This is how you can use it with real kids in a real classroom at all levels, not just at the elementary level. Love it. And so Hacking School Discipline definitely did well. And in it, you share specifically like you're talking about this restorative and social emotional approach to school discipline. But for someone who may not have read the book yet, or this may be their first time kind of hearing these terms, can you kind of break it down for us when we talk about using a restorative and social emotional approach to school discipline? Like, what does that really mean? Yeah, there's a lot of surface level restorative practices out there. It's mm -hmm. we don't suspend kids and instead we do this, right? So a lot a lot of schools are moving towards and moving away from suspensions and expulsions and moving away from a lot of the punitive measures that we have going on in schools. But the problem is, is that even if we have better discipline policies and we have more restorative policies, we're not changing the quantity of kids that are getting sent down to the office in the first place. So when we have the same number of kids going down, you need to realize that it's a tier one thing that we're working on here. It is at the classroom level with kids, you know, before they get to that point where they get in trouble and they get to that point where they get sent down to the office, what are all the proactive things we can do? What are the restorative components we can do to build community and belonging in the classroom while we have them in there? And how do we get it to where kids don't want to act out as much because they're a part of the environment that they're in? You know, when you feel ostracized, when you feel like no one really cares about you, when you don't feel connected, not just to the teacher, but to the kids in the classroom, you have a lot less to lose, less skin in the game. When you feel connected and you belong and you matter, you're going to not want other people to mess up the learning environment or mess up the community that you're in, right? Even when you have them wanting to do the right thing and wanting to be part of that community, you know, we have to also not lose ourselves and who we are. So we, it's not about making conformists. It's not about, you know, this is the exact way you need to do this. And this is the exact word you need to say. We need to let kids be who they are. And mm -hmm. through doing restorative things like circles, through doing a lot of collaborative work, through all of those things, we need to have it so that the kids, again, they don't lose their identity and they don't lose who they are. But we work on how to better say that thing that you said and tell the girl 
not to shut up when she's talking to you, when you don't want her to talk to you. You know, we need to work on all those approaches. But the other thing we don't realize and we don't always implement in schools is that if we tell a kid to not do something, we don't always give them the replacement opportunities. We don't have that talk. We don't let them problem solve themselves. We just say, stop talking. Don't do that. Get off your phone. We don't really problem solve. A lot of the time, because we have 25 kids in the room, we're quick to call out behaviors, but we're not very quick to actually develop afterwards. Hey, I know we had to move you during class today. Let's talk through what happened and let's come up with some alternatives because you might find out that one kid was talking to another kid and the other kid did not know what to do in that situation. And I talk to adults and I'll say, you know, Erica, if you were at a staff meeting and another staff member kept on talking to you, And then after the staff meeting, the principal came up to you, Erica, and talked to you about, you know, not paying attention during the staff meeting. I said, Erica, would you actually know what to do and what to say to that other staff member that kept on talking to you? And I say this to adults all the time. Most of them are like, they give me these blank looks like I actually don't know what to do if somebody was to do that to me. What we do is we don't really work on those skills. We just want kids to behave in a certain way or do a certain thing, but we don't give them the solutions. And when we're thinking about those solutions, not only what should you do when another girl's talking to you, you know, they might come up with a solution that's not that great, like tell her to shut up, um, you know, and, and things like that. Well, you know, I don't think that would probably get you the result that you want. Let's think of another way. And in some cases, I might need to give them some ideas. And I always not only give them one idea or have them develop their own idea, is I always go one deeper because when we don't actually do a strategy that works the first time, we're quick to revert back to telling the other girl to shut up. Or whatever it is we're trying to do, right? Mm-hmm. So I go, oh, well, I could ask her to stop talking to me. Okay, that's great. How should you say it in a way that's not going to make her offended? And then we practice that. And then I go, okay, but if you do ask her to stop talking to you and she doesn't, what do you do next? So I always go at least one deep because even if we give consequences, and I, I hate to say it, but we need consequences for actions. Those aren't punitive. Those aren't suspensions. Those aren't sus- explosions, unless it's a safety issue, of course. But we need consequences. If we're not doing what we need to do, there's positive consequences for doing the right thing. And there's positive consequences for doing what you need to do. But there's also negative consequences sometimes to your behaviors. Like if you cause harm, you need to fix that harm. And what I notice is that we don't always hold kids accountable for their actions. Like we say, stop talking, stop talking, stop talking 97 times until we're blue in the face without actually addressing that and the root cause. So when I'm looking at that and I'm looking at all these things, okay, and I, and I noticed that somebody had asked, you know, advice to support members. These relationships have to be deep, authentic, and worked on every single day. It's not something where we can just build a relationship with a kid in the first day of school or the third day of school or the seventh day of school, and then we move on to teaching math for the rest of the year. Like this has to be something that we commit to every day and something we need to work on every single day. And the other thing when it comes to the social emotional learning component is that we have a lot of kids that come to us from all kinds of different experiences. And we need to be careful about what culture we are saying we want you to be like, right? And what certain way you want to say things. And we need to also learn as educators that in certain cultures, different things mean different things to different people as far as what you say, whether or not you make eye contact, language, all those kinds of things. 
Yes. I mean, you hit on so many points. And so we're going to just dive deeper. I was trying to capture some of the things that you said while you were talking. And so let's kind of dive deeper in a few things. So first of all, what I picked up on is that you talked about how we need to ensure that our students don't lose their identity. And so how can we as educators, especially in the classroom, make sure that we're not doing cookie cutter methods and allowing and helping our students to truly be themselves while also holding them accountable? Absolutely. And there's, I know a lot about those kind of practices and culturally responsive teaching, but I'm not going to claim to be the absolute expert and authority. There's other people that have written on that. You know, Zaretta Hammond has written on that, you know, culture response teaching in the brain. I mean, there's other great books about this to get real deep with that. But you need to realize who you are. Like you need to realize, like for me, I'm a white male educator. That's who I am. And I need to acknowledge that and know that I have a certain worldview, a certain perspective. I was raised in a certain way. And I need to realize that students that look different than me, students have a different gender than I am. And even students that do look like me have all had different experiences, different backgrounds, different upbringings. So we need to make sure that our viewpoint and our way is not the only way. We also need to have it so that we're not correcting the way the kid said this or correcting the way the kid said that. We also need to have a classroom that everyone is seen, represented. I look in the walls when I walk into a room and I'm seeing who's on the walls. I'm seeing what's on the bookshelves. I'm looking at that and be like, are the students in your classroom seen in your curriculum, on your walls, in your textbooks, in your reading materials, and all those other kinds of things. We also have to realize is that when we're working with students and we're looking at being culturally responsive, you know, the students need more time to connect with each other. They, they need to hear each other's voices. We need to do circle work. We need to have, you know, community circles where we're talking about something sometimes serious, like talk about something that makes you angry. They might not realize that the kids, you know, some of the kids in their circle have had it run-ins with the police that were, you know, injustices and they've been followed around Walmart and they need to hear these things from each other. They also need to hear a perspective because someone might be a female and they might have had a certain thing that makes them angry that a male might not have to deal with. And it's something that's very empowering when you have a bunch of different cultures and different backgrounds in that community circle in a safe space, getting to hear each other, learn from each other and even advocate for each other when things go wrong and injustices are seen. We also need to make sure when we work with all, all kinds of kids is that we do collaborative work a lot. Like our kids are working constantly with the, each other. We're communicating with each other. We don't let them always pick their groups. We purposefully make groups and groupings of students that aren't, you know, who they would typically work with in, in class. We just need a whole lot of opportunities for kids to hear other kids that don't have their exact same identities, exact same culture, all those other kinds of things. And again, a community circle is one of those starting points for that. But it goes a lot deeper than that. And again, I'm not going to claim to be the expert in cultural responsive teaching. I know enough to be dangerous, but I want to give homage to the people. You know, I incorporate a lot of that into what I do. But, you know, it's not something that I could ever write a solo book about. But it's something that the restorative practices amplify. And our book amplifies is the ability to do those. Yes. And so the book, Hacking School Discipline, someone asked, what's the title? Hacking School Discipline is the book that we're talking about tonight. And one thing that you talked about is that we need to give students consequences for their actions, but do it in a way that holds true to these principles. So kind of go a little further with that. Like, what are some specific examples of how we can hold our kids accountable? Absolutely. Something I want to point out, though, before we even get into that, is that if we don't have the proactiveness built in, if we don't have the relationships built in, 
if we don't give the kids a voice and a choice, if the kids don't feel like they matter in our class, none of what I tell you on how to do discipline or how to do consequences is going to matter that much, right? Even a consequence given to you by some, if, if somebody who you don't like or, do, or you don't feel like they like you or there's not a relationship there gives you a consequence, even if you deserve it, you're not going to feel good about it, right? And if you think about that as an adult even, right? If you work, we've all worked with administrators that we've loved. We worked with administrators we didn't love, right? And if an administrator I love would give me some constructive feedback, you know, I'd be able to take it and I'd be able to grow from it. But if somebody I didn't respect and somebody that, you know, didn't really pay attention to me and I didn't have a connection with, if they told me something, I'd be like, what do they know? They've never, they haven't taught in 19 years and blah, 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 right? And that's how the kids feel about us. And when we're giving them consequences. So I want to say, is the classroom environment proactive? Are the actual expectations fair and clear and consistent? Only then, you know, can we think about fair consequences and consequences for actions. So here's an example of a consequence for your action, okay, that's restorative, logical. So two students are talking to each other, right? And they won't stop talking to each other. And they won't stop talking to each other. And I've used my proximity. I have, you know, given the teacher I, I have I've done all those things. But before that, I have to think about this. Have I given the kids a break? Have I talked for too long in a row? Are most of my students confused right now? I have to also be very reflective of the room in general, you know, because sometimes I had them sit for 19 minutes in a row and listen to me. So they're going to be a little bit squirrely. So again, you have to be very reflective. You have to do your due diligence only when you've done, you know, the, what you needed to do and they're still talking. That's when I get into that, you know, consequence part. And again, these consequences are never public. They're always one-on-one -on -one when possible. Unless it's, you know, running with scissors in the room, then you can't, you know, have a one-on-one -on -one conversation later because it's a big situation, right? Or if it's actively flopping on the floor and screaming, you know, that's something that you might have to address pretty quickly. But if a kid's on their computer, if they're on Minecraft, if they're on their phone, and it's not impacting the whole rest of the class, you have to decide when am I going to intervene, if any, you don't have to call out a kid on their phone in front of their 25 peers. I'm going to tell you that that's not going to go very, very well. It's always going to be a power struggle. It's going to be embarrassing for them. And they're not going to be embarrassed by you in front of their peers. And it's going to cause conflict, right? So you have to also worry about when, when you're doing this. So if kids were talking during class and it wasn't causing the whole rest of the class to get off task, I would find a good time. When I had a break, I would do a turn and talk. I would do some sort of group activity. They go back to their stations to do an activity. It's now time to read or to do our math problems. You know, I find a good time. I walk up to the girl or the boy or however they identify. And I walk up to them and I would say, hey, I noticed that you were talking when I was teaching and it makes me feel a little bit sad. Or yeah, I tell them how it made me feel. Can you tell me more about that? So I actually would ask them, can you tell me more about that? Here's what I noticed. Here's how it made me feel. Can you tell me more about that? Because we have to give them a voice. We have to actually let them speak because what if they weren't talking? What if they actually were one of 17 kids on their cell phone at that time? What if I didn't actually see what I thought I saw? And in some cases, the kid was on their cell phone because their mom's in the hospital. And that's something I have to help them problem solve how we can communicate with the hospital or your mom, you know, in a more productive way. Right. So I always ask, can you tell me more about that? After I hear them, I always validate it. And I say, you know, thank you so much for sharing that. What I heard was. And I always use that reflective listening, right? To make sure they're heard. I restate what they had said. I thank them. They could tell me that my class is horrible and I hate you and science sucks. And I would say, thank you so much for telling me that. What I heard was science is a little bit, you're not your favorite subject right now. So you might want to reframe it a little bit, right? Right. But then I tell them, hey, 
But if I do see you talking to Susie or I do see you talking to Bethany or you, I do see you talking to whoever you're talking to again, I'm going to have to move your seats next. And I'm going to move their seat because if two people are talking to each other, what's logical is to remove the distraction from each other. And I'm not doing this in front of their whole class. I'm not saying, hey, if anyone else talks, I'm going to move you too. It's very quiet. But, hey, I'm going to have to have you move over here for the rest of the class period. And then you have to actually, if they do it again, have to actually do it. Right. Because if you don't do it, oh, give me another chance or, well, I really would do it next time. You know, if you don't do it and you give them 19 more warnings, then what they're going to learn is that you don't actually say what you mean and you don't mean what you say. You don't, you don't mean business, right? Right. It doesn't, it doesn't end there. After I do have to move them. And again, I'm working on a logical progression of things we might try. That's part of what I'm working on in my PD is what do I try first for a certain behavior? What do I try second? And how many times do I try this? So when I move them seats, I go up to her a little bit later or him or whoever. I go up to him a little bit later after the fact. I'm not going to have a big, long discussion because in a classroom, you got 30 kids, right? You don't have time to have a five minute conversation right then and there when you're trying to get back to the class and get back to the lesson. I touch base later and I'll talk to her and I'll say, hey, I had to move you and I had asked you to do this. You had mentioned that you were talking to her because she wouldn't stop talking to you or whatever, right? All right. Then we get into that. What I talked about before, what could you do instead of, of that next time? And they, they might go with, well, I don't know what I would do. They might go with, we'll tell her to shut up. They might, you know, they might give you some things that are not the most productive or whatever. But once you have that plan that you come up with together, the next time you have the girls that are talking to each other or the boys that are talking to each other, you revert back to that plan you came up with. Hey, remember the last time we talked about this? You said you'd ask her to stop. Did you do that? Then it's their plan. It's a lot more powerful, right? And I hold them to that. And if they won't stop talking, you know, I try that again. I move their seats again. Then I move their seats again. After I've tried it three to five times, then I'm going to move their seat for longer next time. And, you know, the same thing with technology. If you're misusing your computer, I'm going to give you every opportunity to put it away or get off of Minecraft. But if you won't get off of Minecraft, you're going to have to lose your device for the rest of that class period. And that's logical. If the distraction is the computer, the consequence should involve the computer. If the distraction is the phone, the consequence should involve the phone. If they're talking to each other, it should involve the people that are talking to each other, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it, it needs to be logical. And when you think about the restorative component, the reason why I, I love restorative practices, but I'm also working on, you know, beyond that, is because harm is not always really caused in every situation. Right. You know, yeah, if a student is by herself on Minecraft or a student is by himself on his phone, is harm really being caused to anyone but the kid themselves? So you can't have the big restorative conversation for somebody that's not really causing a huge amount of harm somebody else and we're going to go through the whole process right so that's why i like that that approach where we do do some of the restorative we do give them a voice but we don't go through the big long process in the classroom because we don't have time right to do the big long process and we also have to think about the natural consequences because sometimes the kids don't have empathy for each other i don't know if you notice that erica the empathy is <laughs> on the decline um, <laughs> where right Facebook thread, you're going to see empathy is on the decline in a lot of places, right? Even even as adults, we don't have right. for each other. We just, you know, we, we talk to talk, we don't listen. So we might get into that empathy thing, but we also don't really get into the natural consequence and actually ask them, hey, how is being on Minecraft during class impacting you? We ask a lot about how it was impacting others. We're sort of practices, but the natural consequences are the things that I don't have to do as an educator to them. 
It's something that happens naturally. You run down the hallway when you shouldn't, you fall and you trip. That's a natural consequence of running down the hallway you fill and you tripped, right? But we don't really talk about that. We talk a lot about who did you impact? How can you make it right with them? But we don't mm-hmm. really look back on them and have them think, how is it impacting you? And I saw somebody in the comment, uh, Jennifer mentioned that adults need to work on empathy as well. So when I think about restorative practices, and again, I, I do restorative practices, but I also combine it with social emotional learning, applied neuroscience, trauma-informed practices, equitable practices, because no one has all of the answers. Not one system, not PBIS, not MTSS, not one of them has every situation for every kid. So when we look at that, look about that, you know, on empathy, are we in the staff lounge talking about each other? Are we actually resolving conflict as adults? Is the principal having a restorative conversation between two adults in the building? Is an adult able to resolve their own conflict with another adult instead of talking about them when they didn't uh, fix the copier when they jammed it, right? Do they know how to actually approach that? So I would say that the leadership in the school needs to work with their educators, just like we expect the students to be getting restorative practices too. Because we have empathy a lot for the kids as educators. Mm-hmm. We have empathy with each other all the time. As well. Yes, there are so many great tips and strategies that you have shared with us tonight. But with all good things, there are challenges. And so when people are trying to implement this approach to school discipline, what are some of the challenges that teachers face and what can they do to overcome it? Absolutely. So a challenge with this is the surface level restorative practices where we say we're restorative. It's on our website. It's in our policy. It's somewhere else. Right. But the reality is it doesn't go very deep. So we can have restorative policies in the office. But if the teachers aren't restorative and how they interact with the kids, how they build relationships, you're going to have the same quantity of issues, except for you're going to handle the negative component just as well. So I would say we do a spree and break kind of method in a lot of places where we send somebody to a training and then we expect mm-hmm. them to come back and get that buy-in from the rest of the staff and no one else was at the training. And I compare that to, okay, that'd be like one person going and seeing the newest Avenger movie and then going back and telling everyone how awesome it was and we should do what the Avengers did and no one else saw it, right? So basically right. We're getting secondhand excitement from a couple of staff members. So the staff buy-in is gigantic. It's huge. It's something that they have to be part of the journey, not just it's a bunch of administrative work in the summer. And then we lay out our policies for the staff to follow. You have to be a believer in the work. And when you realize that negative and the punitive is quick and it's easy, but it never actually changes behavior or at least very rarely ever changes the behavior. So it's one of those things where you have to run maybe 15 circles before you get it to go well. You can't just give up. Oh, I tried that one circle my crazy principal mm-hmm. talked about. So I'm not going to try it again, right? Or right. I, well, I, tr- well, I tried asking, I tried having a restorative conversation with the kid and they told me to go screw myself. And, and I'll say, well, restorative practices is not the silver bullet. Sometimes it goes wrong. It's the go-to method. It's where we always start. And it might take 97 restorative conversations before a kid actually gets it. It might take 97. We have kids that are high school seniors that still have problems with their emotions and have problems on how they talk to people, right? Absolutely. So it's sure don't get discouraged because you had a few conversations with a kid that didn't go your way and you didn't get them to quite see it yet. So it's about the long term. It's not about that one immediate situation that with, with a kid. So I just want to throw it out there that it is something that will take you a while to get really good at. Just like I did project based mm-hmm. learning, I did Genius Hour. I let the kids choose their own projects when I was a teacher. And it went, to, it was a disaster first couple of times, absolute disaster. And I almost gave up on it. Over time, I kept with it. 
And by the end of the year, I had kids doing projects that had never did a single worksheet in the entire year, creating these mass masterpieces for projects, right? Right. But I asked people, what's the alternative? The alternative is we're going to get what we always get, which is our students of color getting suspended at a three time, you know, two to three time higher rate than their than their Caucasian peers. We're going to get students with IEPs getting suspended at least double as often as their, you know, non-IEP peers. We're going to have, you know, continue to see the scores that we're seeing. So I look at it this way. If we're going to continue to do our punitive practices and we're not going to change as the adults, we're going to get what we've always gotten. So when people ask me, well, Prove the restorative practices works. I'm like, prove what you're doing works. You know, you know what I mean? Like it, it, right. working. That's why I'm here. So again, you're going to have kids who are coming and who are, ne- they're not going to get it that year. But I will say it's still the go-to method. You know, you might have to occasionally suspend a kid that did something big, but you don't have to suspend them for five days. You know, if they got in a fight, maybe we can do two or three days with a restorative justice conference and reintegration conference and actual discussion with the other kid and figure out down to the root of the issue. We don't have to do put them in ISS where they just sit in a room all day. Let's put them in a room with an adult where we actually have teaching and conflict resolution and give them mm-hmm. some components and all those other kind of things. So I would say when we're thinking about this and we're thinking about, you know, the restorative practices and we're thinking about the social emotional component of this, it's not a silver bullet. It's not a quick fix. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. And it's not, you know, a get rich quick scheme, you know, kind of thing like that. It's going to take you a long time to get going. But once you have it going, it's going to stick because it's going to be embedded in everything that you do. Awesome. And so for someone that is inspired tonight and they're like, I am ready to start. What is one action that they can implement tomorrow? Or if they're on summer break and they're like, I'm going to start the school year off strong. What's that one action that they can start? So one action you can start. I always tell people to start small. You can't go like I've been to, a, you know, when I do trainings with schools everywhere, I give them like the broadness of it. I, I give them a lot of different strategies. I show them the big picture. I show them, you know, what's behind the curtain, you know, because we have to give teachers and administrators, here's the big overall picture, right? You know, I have to show them the whole thing, but I say, we need to start small because if you try to do all of it, you're going to do none of it because you're going to be overwhelmed and you can't be good at everything all at once. So I say you have to actually go very slow. I would just do as much reading as you can at first. Before you actually try anything, I would go and observe another teacher who's doing these things in action and see how they do it. Because one of the big things I do when I visit schools is I'll I'll model a circle and I'll show them that, yeah, I'm from Indiana, but I can go into Nevada. I can go into California. I can go into Detroit. I can go wherever and I can do a classroom circle with your kids. Sometimes they have to see it in in order to believe it. Right. 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 I would say if you're going to do anything. It would be starting small with proactive practices. Try to build that learning environment to the best you can get it so there's less discipline issues in the first place. Try to look at what you're doing. Try to do circles. Try to get to know your kids. Try to build it continuously. So when I think about this and what you can actually do, it's really helpful to actually get formally trained so that you have something to work. You might make it your own a little bit, but if you have, again, you have one person that went to a conference coming back and showing you what you should do versus you experiencing it yourself. So I would recommend getting training. I would recommend reading books and you can read my book. You can read other people's books. You can read whatever you want to do. And I would pinpoint, you know, think about a plan. In year one, my goal is to implement 
one or two things and get really good at doing those one or two things. Because guess what, Erica? I work with schools who also have curriculum, who also have other things they're implementing at the same time, who are also four years deep into something else, right? Right. If you try to add what I'm talking about to everything else you're already doing and do all of it at once, it's not going to work. But what I will say is that it's a time thing, but we spend a lot of our time redirecting students. We spend a lot of our time in conflict. We spend a lot of our time dealing with unmet needs and behaviors. So I would say that the things that we talk about are actually going to buy you back classroom time because we're going to have less conflict. We're going to have less kids acting out. We're going to have less kids that are going at each other or screaming at you across the room because we are proactive in the first couple of months of school so that you can actually, in my opinion, teach as much, if not more, eventually. But it's about that time commitment towards the beginning. Awesome. And so for people that want to learn more about you, we know that, you know, we can find you at Teacher Goals, but where else can they find you? Sure. You can follow me on Twitter. My uh, handle is Weinstein, E-D-U-W-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N-E-D-U. I do some trainings. So if you go to teachergoals.com slash PD, you can find me and contact me there. But I'm always online. I'm always in social media. And I, I love working with schools. Awesome. Well, we have learned so much tonight. So many tips, tools, and strategies. And we have the comments are burning up. And so I just want to say thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you so much for blessing us with all of these tips and inspiration. Absolutely. And, and thanks for having me, Erica. It's really great to actually be on the uh, note <laughs> that is on the Teacher Goals pages. So thank you for having me tonight. Wow. At the beginning of this episode, I told you that Brad brought the fire today. He is definitely more than the man behind the memes. He is giving us inspiration, giving us laughter, but also he definitely showed up and gave us so many great tools and tips that we can use in our classrooms to implement a social, emotional, and restorative approach to school discipline. And I want to hear what was your favorite tip? What is it that you're going to implement starting tomorrow? Let us know what's your favorite tip that you're going to implement in your classroom. Create a post, tag us at Teacher Goals, or you can tag me, Erica Terry, at Healthy Wealthy Educators so that we can show your post some love. And I just want to thank you so much for hanging out with us today. I appreciate you and we value you within the Teacher Goals community. Thank you for all that you're doing as educators. We appreciate you and we will be back next week. So we will see you there. Thank you so much for tuning into the Teacher Goals podcast. Here are three ways that you can engage with us and join an amazing community of educators. First, subscribe to the show in whatever platform you're tuning in on. Second, be sure to follow us and join the Teacher Goals Connected School Communities Facebook group so that you never miss our live recordings and the opportunity to engage in a live Q&A with our weekly guests. Last but certainly not least, I'd love to hear your favorite tip from today's show. Leave a review or snap a pic and create a post tagging at Teacher Goals and me at Healthy Wealthy Educators so that we can check out all of the great things that you're doing to achieve your teacher goals. 
teacher goals and teach your heart out is sponsoring a 2023 Bahamas cruise open to all educators. Guests such as spouses, family, and friends are also welcome to attend. There is an amazing lineup of speakers, and you can book your PD at sea now by putting down a $200 deposit. Attend the Sail Away Party Thursday, July 6th in Port Canaveral at 6 p.m. in preparation for Cruising Friday. You will return Monday, July 10th at 8 a.m. Scan the QR code now to sign up. You don't want to miss it.